Let's open our Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57. The first two verses speak of the righteous man that perishes. Then we get verses 3 through 14. We run into apostate Israel. And then verses 15 through 21, we see two classes of people that's involved there. So we might say these first two verses, and then we talk about apostate Israel. Now, look at the first verse. It says, The righteous perisheth, and no man layeth it to heart. And merciful men are taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. He shall enter into peace, and they shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. Now then, uh, there have been many times that I've used this verse to show how that sometimes righteous people and good people are cut off in life before, it seems like, before their time. In other words, we might say a child that dies, or a person that's, that's a good man, or that's cut off at the age of 30 or 35, or just in the prime of life, or some, a woman, uh, just with a young family. And I've used this in funerals to show how that sometimes God does does call someone home, and because he knows the evil to come, and uh, we know that they enter into peace. But here, some have suggested, and I don't find any fault with it, that Jesus is spoken of, as in many places in Isaiah, he's the one that... Uh, is the righteous man that perishes and no man lays it to heart also. He is the just for the unjust. And he was cut off, and it seems as if no man would lay it to heart. And then it says, and merciful men are taken away. If, if the first refers to Christ, or could speak of Christ, we're not saying that it does, but it could, very likely could, then the other could speak of the apostles, merciful men, for they are certainly merciful, they're taken away, none considering that the righteous is taken away from the evil to come. But in either case, they all go into peace, and they rest from their labors. They rest in their beds. So these two verses have a a great deal of meaning, and I believe it's perfectly proper to see Jesus in them, because he certainly was cut off, and he certainly is the righteous one. Now, we know that as far as perishing, that doesn't mean that he ever would perish in any way other than just being cut off physically and dying for our sins and no man taking it to heart. As Isaiah predicted earlier in the 53rd chapter, it says uh, in verse uh, 8, He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, and we know that 53rd chapter, verse 8, is speaking of Christ. It says, For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. So, if you look at Isaiah 57, then, verse 1 and 2, we certainly do know that Jesus was cut off from this life, and yet he rose again the third day from the grave, and entered into glory. Now then, let's pick up with verses 3 through uh, 14. 
And I believe that we're going to see in these verses apostate Israel. Israel in an apostate condition. And verses 3 through 14, look at it. But draw near hither, ye sons of sorcerers, the seed of, an, of the adulterer and the whore, against whom ye sport yourselves, against whom ye make a wide mouth and draw out the tongue. Are ye not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood? You know, God's earthly people fell tremendously from the blessings and the the standard and the plan that God had for them. And so they backslid, they turned away from God, and they committed all sorts of evils. In verse 5, it says, Inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the cliffs of the rocks. Among the smooth stones of the stream is thy portion. They are thy lot. They would take these smooth stones and set them up as idols. Remember, Jacob laid his head down upon a stone, and then later he set it up as a pillar. And he says, this is Bethel. This is a place, the house of God. Well, in that sense, it was all right. But then they would do the same thing, and not to God. Of course, we don't recommend setting up stones to refer to worshiping God. But they would do it and set up their idol worship. You see, the smooth stones out of the stream. Uh, they are thy lot. Even to them hast thou poured a drink offering. See that? Thou hast offered a meat offering to these stones. Should I receive comfort in these? God says, should I, should I be comforted in what you're doing? Upon a lofty and high mountain hast thou set thy bed. Even thither winnest thou up to offer sacrifice. Behind the doors also, and the post hast thou set up thy remembrance. In other words, they worship their idols. For thou hast discovered thyself to another than me, other than God, and art gone up, thou hast enlarged thy bed, and made thee a covenant with them. Thou lovest their bed, where thou sawest it. That's quite the contrary. If you look in the first part of verse 8, it says, But behind the doors also and the post hast thou set up thy remembrance. They have set up the remembrance of their idols instead of what God... This is exactly opposite to what God had commanded. Look back in Deuteronomy 6, uh, concerning the word. They were to set it up behind the doors and on the posts of the house and on the gates. Let's read uh, in uh, Deuteronomy 6. Uh, let's begin with verse... Uh, it says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be, first of all, he says, shall be in thine heart. Okay? The heart matter. And then it says, And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. In other words, the word of God was to be continually before them, in their heart and in their lives, in their talk, their conversation, when they lie down, when they rise up. In verse 9 says, And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. Now then, back in Isaiah 57 verse 8. 
says, Behind the doors also and the posts hast thou set up thy remembrance. In direct opposition to setting up the commandments of God and keeping the commandments of the word of God ever before them, they had set up the remembrance of what? Their idols, their falsehoods, and they had set up the wrong thing for remembrance. Now then pick up with verse 9. And thou wentest to the king with ointment, and didst increase thy perfumes, and didst send thy messengers far off, and didst debase thyself even unto hell. In other words, they, Israel had completely apostatized. In verse 10, Thou art wearied in the greatness of thy way, yet thou saidest not, there is no hope. Thou hast found the life of thine hand. Therefore thou wast not grieved. They seemed to be satisfied with what they were doing. And of whom hast thou been afraid or feared? That thou hast lied, and hast not remembered me. They showed no reverence to the Lord, nor laid it to thy heart. Have not I held my peace even of old, and thou fearest me not? They did not show the reverence to God. Verse 12, I will declare thy righteousness in thy works, for they shall not profit thee. When thou criest, let thy companies deliver thee. You let your idols, your gods, deliver you. But the wind shall carry them all away. Vanity shall take them. But he that putteth his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. God is showing how vain and weak and helpless are their idols and their worship. But how that if they trust him, they would inherit the land and his holy mountain, possess the land and the holy mountain. Verse 14. And shall say, cast ye up, cast ye up, prepare the way. Take the stumbling block out of the way of my people. Now then, verses 15 through 21 show us the two classes of people. And we're going to find the holy, and we're going to find the wicked. God's people are holy, and certainly the repentant one, the one that trusts the Lord, is the, is the child of God, the one that de- depends upon him, puts his faith and trust in him. But the wicked are seen also down in the latter part of the chapter. But let's read, beginning with verse 15. It says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. In other words, he's eternal. He inhabits eternity. He's the one that was from the beginning. It says, Whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. There's none holier than God. There's none higher than God. He is the high and holy one. And it says, He dwells with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. Isn't it something that God would condescend to dwell with men who are humble and contrite? And yet that's exactly what he says. To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. So you see that God is holy and God has some holy ones. And they're holy because they're humble before him, they're contrite before him, and he's going to lift them up and revive them. In verse 16, For I will not contend forever, neither will I always be, be always wroth, for the spirit should fail before me and the souls which I have made. For the iniquity of his covetousness was I wroth and smote him. I hid me and was wroth, and he went on forwardly in the way of his heart. I have seen his ways, 
and will heal him. I will lead him also and restore comforts unto him and to his mourners. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is afar off and to him that is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Now let's stop there for a moment. Though God's people uh, are far off from him, uh, yet he's going to bring them near. Uh, and though they backslid away, uh, have backslidden away from uh, him, he's going to restore them. Uh, he's going to restore their comforts. He's going to restore their peace if they will but turn and turn back to God. Uh, actually, the word far off and to him that is near may indicate two things. It may indicate the far off in Israel who were backslidden and the near, those that were near God and had not gone so far away from him. But also, in the New Testament, we know that those that are nigh are spoken of as Israel in general and the far off are the Gentiles. If you want to turn to a verse in uh, the book of Ephesians, I'll give it to you. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, it says, Wherefore remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh. Now these Gentiles are the ones that are going to be called afar off. Now drop down to verse 12. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, you see that refers to the Gentiles who were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So here in Ephesians, it's the Gentiles who are far off that are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And Paul goes on to say, For he is our peace who hath made both one, that is both Jews and Gentiles, and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us, between Jews and Gentiles, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, between Jews and Gentiles, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain of the two, Jews and Gentiles, one new man, so making peace. Verse 16, and that he might reconcile both, both Jews and Gentiles, unto God in one body, body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Okay, so back in Isaiah now, in verse 19, he says, Peace, peace to him that is far off, and to him that is near, says the Lord. I will heal him. We've given you two thoughts there. One, that it pertains to the Israelite who is afar off because of his separation from God, and the Israelite that is near because of his remaining truth to the Lord. Or, secondly, the, the Israelites in general who are near to God by covenant relationship. <laughs> And the Gentiles who are far off because they have no covenant relationship and need to be brought close to God. And, of course, in the New Testament it's revealed, we've just read, how they will be brought close to the Lord. Now then, in verse 20 and 21, we see the other people in view. Not the, not the holy, not the righteous, but we see the wicked. In verse 20, but the wicked are like the troubled sea that when it cannot rest whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. The wicked are like the troubled sea. They're troubled in heart, troubled in spirit. And they have no rest, no peace. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Now then, in chapter 58, I'll give you a brief of it, too. We're going to see the condition of the people. 
and we're going to see repentance and blessings to follow the condition of the people. Uh, the first verse, we're going to see the prophet's commission in, in preaching to these people of Israel, Jacob, who is, uh, actually transgressed against God and who is backslidden and away from God. The prophet is commissioned. Now look at verse 1. God says, cry aloud. He says, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Now you see, God said to Isaiah, he says, I want you to, I'm giving you a commission. This is the prophet's commission. I'm giving you a commission to cry aloud and show the people of Israel, Jacob, their transgressions, their sins. And as he preaches the word, he will reveal, as he preaches what God says concerning them, he will reveal their sins to them. Actually, that's the commission of of the ministry today, is for us to preach the word, and it helps every one of us to see our sins. It helps the, the unsaved to see his, himself sinful, away from God. It helps the Christian who is backslidden to see his sins and how they mount up before God. It helps every one of us to see our sins. And that should be our commission today as well, to carry out the great commission of Christ, to preach the word, make disciples, to preach the gospel so that it's the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes it. Now then, Verses 2 through 5 show us something else. Verses 2 through 5 show us the transgression and sins of Jacob and how they're uncovered. The prophet uncovers them literally. Now let's see how he does that. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As a nation that did righteousness and forsook not the ordinance of their God, They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not. In other words, they're seeking God, but they're doing it in hypocrisy. They say, they say, why hasn't God listened to us? We've been pulling, we've been on a fast. We've fasted. We've mourned for uh, things and we've uh, repented. Now, look at verse 3 very carefully. Now, there's some good information here. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not. They, they thought God was not looking, but he was looking. In fact, what he was beholding was their hypocrisy. Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge. They're accusing God of not considering their uh, fast and affliction of their soul, and thou takest no knowledge. Behold, in the day of your fast you find pleasure and exact all your labors. In the day that they were supposed to be fasting, in the day that they had pretended they were fasting, they just continued to do exactly what they had done at other times. They had taken advantage of finding pleasure and exacting their labors. In other words, they kept on doing business as usual, you might say. Let's, let's try to bring it down home. Say it's a Sabbath day. Rest. Instead of honoring the Sabbath, you know, the Jews, they, they could only travel a Sabbath day's journey, couldn't they? They were to go a Sabbath day's journey. But instead of that, many of them transgressed the Sabbath, and they went more than that, and they, they went on uh, longer visits. They used the day for their pleasure instead of for God's 
uh, to reverence God. Now, wh- what, how would that apply to Christians today? We take the Lord's Day and do much the same thing. The day that we're to, to worship God and set aside to worship God, the Bible says on the first day of the week when the disciples assembled together to break bread, Paul preached to them. We know that after the resurrection of Jesus, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, has been a day of worship in the New Testament church. And yet, what have Christians done on the Lord's Day but use it? You see, it's a day of fasting. It's a day of worship. Uh, what have they done on the Lord's Day but take it for a day of pleasure and a day to keep on doing any and everything they want to do? Verse 4 says, Behold, ye fast for strife and debate. And to smite with the fist of wickedness. Ye shall not fast as you do, uh, as you do this day, to make your voice to be heard on high. God says, I'm not going to listen to this foolishness. In other words, God was displeased with them. And their pretense of fasting and of worship. Pretending to be sorry in their souls for their sins. Pretending to afflict their souls and to mourn. And yet they were doing nothing but uh, using this day for a day of pleasure, even though they proclaimed it as a fast. Look at verse 5. He says, Is it such a fast that I have chosen? God says, Have I chosen such a thing as this? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Have I chosen this? Is it to bow down his head as a bulrush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him, God said, see, these are all questions, if you look at it. They're all questions. Is it such a fast that I have chosen? Question. A day for a man to afflict his soul? Question. Is it to bow down his head as a bull rush and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? There's another question. Wilt thou call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Will you call this such a thing as this as a fast? Now then, verses That reveals their transgression and their sins. In other words, what was Israel doing? What was Jacob doing? Pretending to be religious, pretending to be concerned, pretending to afflict his soul, pretending to fast, and yet steeped in sin, committing hypocrisy. Now then, verses 6 and 7 show us the Lord's requirements, divine requirements. What does God expect? He says, is not this the fast that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness? In other words, I will, I'd rather you put wickedness away from you than to, do, to pretend to do without a meal or two and claim this is a fast. God says the fast that I have chosen is to get rid of your wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. In other words, to do something good for others, to help those in need. The Lord says, this is the fast that I'd have you to do, Jacob. I don't care about you afflicting your soul and pretending to fast and do without food two or three uh, meals in a day. He says, what I'm concerned about is to get rid of your wickedness. And he says, I want you to release the heavy burdens that are upon others. When you take the, the food that you pretend to be doing without and give it to someone that's poor and that wants, has nothing to eat, That's a fast that I've chosen. See, God says it'd be better if you're going to give up that food for a day, give it to some poor fellow over here that doesn't have a meal to eat. Look at the next verse. Is it not to deal thy bread to the hungry? That's the fast God has chosen. And that thou bring bring the poor that are cast out to thy house? 
God says, that's the fast I've chosen. He says, I want you to get wickedness away from you. I want you to release the heavy burdens. I want you to let the oppressed go free. I want you to feed the hungry. I want you to take care of the poor. And and uh, when thou seest the naked, that thou cover him. In other words, give a piece of clothing to someone that's, that's freezing in the cold. And that thou hide not thyself from thine own flesh. That's divine requirements. What did God rather have of you and I as Israel of old? God had rather have us putting away wickedness. You know, we proclaim a fast, say, we're going to fast this day, a day of fasting. Say, I'm going to do without my noon meal and my evening meal. And I'm going to uh, really show the Lord that I mean business, that I want to serve him. But God says, what I want you to do, he says this, I want you to put away your sins. I want you to put away your wickedness. And I want you to help people that are in need. And I want you to uh, relieve the oppressed. And I want you to feed the hungry and clothe the naked. So that's what I, that's the kind of fast I've chosen. That's what God requires. That's divine requirements. Divine requirements. Every once in a while, one of the television evangelists will proclaim a day of fast, fasting. You want to proclaim a day of fasting like God would have us to do? He says, get rid of your sins. God says, let's let's start doing right. God says, let's put things right in our own lives and in our own hearts and start helping somebody that's in need. Verses 8 through 14 is what God promises, what Jehovah promises. Verses 8 through 14. Look at it quickly. Then shall thy light break forth as the morning. If you'll do what I've required for your fasting, if you'll start doing these things that are contained in verses 6 and 7, and I've already spelled them out at least twice, then, verse 8, shall thy light break forth as the morning, and thine health shall bring forth speedily, and thy righteousness uh, shall go before thee. The glory of the Lord shall be thy real reward. He's going to go behind you, before you and behind you. Then shall, notice the word then, then in verse 8, and then in verse 9. Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer. God's going to hear your prayers. Thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. If thou take away uh, from the midst of thee the yoke, the putting forth of the finger, and speaking vanity, if you'll get things right, as again, we put it in those simple words. Verse 10. And if thou draw out thy soul to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul, then shall thy light rise in obscurity, and thy darkness be as the noonday. You see, God wants us to be real and genuine in our lives as Christians. We're to be people that are to, to, to uh, first of all, we're to be true to God's word. We're to be true not only in declaring it, but we're to be true in living it. If someone needs help, we're to be willing to help. If, if, if there's someone that we can help by giving out the word, we can help them in that way. If there's someone that we can share with, we can help that way. And he says if we'll do these things, we're going to find that God is going to, to cause uh, thy light shall rise in obscurity, verse 10, and thy darkness shall be as the noonday. Verse 11, and the Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought when it seems like there's so, so much drought that you won't make a, uh, 
bushel of wheat to the acre, God says, I'm going to see to it. You get enough to eat. Satisfy thy soul in drought. And make thy fat, and make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water, whose waters fail not. He's going to see to it that you, you prosper and are blessed. And they that, and they that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places. Thou shalt rise up, raise up, rather, the foundations of many generations. And thou shalt be called the repair of the breach, the restore of the past to dwell in. In other words, these verses show us the blessings, all the great blessings that will come upon God's people. Actually, they speak of the future blessings uh, that, will, that God will bestow upon the remnant of Israel. They're described here. There's a future day that God will bless his earthly chosen people. And Isaiah predicts that future blessing for Israel. Verse 13, If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, in other words, if they do what God told them to do on the holy day instead of desecrating the Sabbath, we've already pointed that out. In other words, if you don't go around visiting uh, mile after mile and stay within the com- uh, the confines of the law that told the Jew, of course, we're, we're not bound by that, but told them to go only a Sabbath day's journey, you see. And they were going beyond what God had permitted. And call my Sabbath a delight. He says, I want you to call it a delight. The holy of the Lord honorable and shall honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine, not, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. In other words, the Lord wanted them to return to him. Then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord. And I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Now God wanted his people, didn't he? To turn to him in all reality. He wanted them to be true to him. He wanted them to uh, see their transgressions, first of all, as the prophet called them to, to mind and uncovered them. He wanted them to know what his requirements were for real service to God and real blessings from God. And God would give them, uh, if they would just but obey and start doing what he told them to do, he would give them these blessings that are mentioned here in the last uh, several verses, verses 8 through 14. All right, we'll pick up with our in our next lesson with chapter 59 and 60 in the book of Isaiah.